All right, well, we're going to jump into the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to look at the second half. Uh, as you remember, for those of you who are visiting um, or new to Door of Hope, we've been going through since the fall uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and it's entitled The Kingdom of Grace. And the reason we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount and the reason it's called The Kingdom of Grace is because the Sermon on the Mount, um, when not viewed through the lens of grace, can become a very troubling teaching of Jesus that can quickly lead to, uh, lead to a legalism that can end in despair. And what we need to understand is that everything in Scripture, the gospel, uh, means that that is the lens by which we interpret the words of Jesus and his teachings. How do we make sense of the, the teachings of Christ? Well, we make sense of it by interpreting it through the cross. Uh, this is why Paul said, we preach Christ and him crucified. Because the cross brings um, meaning and balance uh, to our understanding of what Jesus is driving at in the Sermon on the Mount. Because what he poses for us is actually an impossibility that becomes possible when our faith, which is a, as I like to call it, a disposition of trust toward Christ that allows Christ to be Christ in and through our lives. It's when we actually, it's, it's meant to push us to a place of desperation, to drive us continually back to that first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the whole focus of the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those that recognize their desperate need for the king himself to empower us to live into the reality of what God has declared us to be through our faith in Jesus. And that's a powerful thing. And in chapter 6, uh, we've moved into this, what, what I like to refer to as kind of these different realms of what it means to enter into spiritual um, maturity. It's the practices of the Christian life. And Jesus doesn't say, you know, if you decide to fast or if you decide to pray or if you decide to do good deeds, he says, and when you do these things. He's assuming these realities for his followers. Also, it's important to point out once again that yes, he was there was a crowd that was gathered. As Jesus' public ministry exploded, uh, his notoriety grew and grew. And people, crowds of people, especially as there were rumors of healings um, and demons being cast out, supernatural acts, um, people came from all over because they're like, this is a new prophet. Um, we need to go and see who this guy is. Maybe it's the Messiah. And so the curiosity around Jesus caused multitudes to come to him. But on this particular occasion, there's a lot of confusion on who is Jesus speaking to. And if you think that Jesus is just speaking to just the, the regular folks who have not yet actually entered into that kingdom, uh, that are not yet his followers, uh, then the Sermon on the Mount will be interpreted in a very particular way. But you need to remember what it says at the beginning of chapter 5. It says, it says, and when the multitudes gathered to him, he actually went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he began to teach them, saying... In other words, the crowds wanted something from Jesus. Jesus moved away from the crowds up onto the mountain. Uh, you don't preach. You, communicators in the ancient world, 
the amphitheater was created <laughs> uh, because an understanding of how sound works. Uh, you don't stand um, above people and preach, preach down to them, and he wasn't standing, he was sitting. You're definitely not going to preach to a crowd from a seated position above them. You would maybe sit if you were below them. That's not how it works. But here's what creates the confusion. What Jesus did is he moved away from the crowds. He sits down. His disciples come to them come to him and he begins to teach them saying this is actually the model for church in the park what we've always done uh, which is we do open-air preaching in the summers at Colonel Summers we're not preaching at those pagans out there Um, no we're bringing what we do as Christians into a public setting and we and we're teaching the church but what happens when people gather around Jesus other people come to see what's going on. It's, a, it's actually just a, a, it's a very natural thing. Well, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what we're, we're told is, and when the multitudes, the multitudes heard him, they said, they said, this man does not teach like the scribes and Pharisees, for he speaks as one who has authority. So the disciples gathered around Jesus became, uh, became a magnet for the multitudes to come and hear what he is telling them. And, and I think that this is a picture of what the church is meant to be. That when we gather around Jesus, the outside world, when we true, this is why the church matters. When people say, I love Jesus, but I don't want to go to church, that's a problem because Jesus is the one that established the church and the church is his bride, even if she's the worst bride ever. Okay, you, it's his bride. And the bride, like all brides, throughout human history, they're just, they're flawed. They're deeply flawed. I'm just joking. You're like, where's he going with this? <laughs> we all are the bride, men and women, just like we all are sons of God if we're born again because we are in the son, Jesus. So it goes both ways. Sonship, brides. Like g- girls don't want to be called sons. Guys don't necessarily want to be called brides. Uh, but these are the metaphors used to describe the people of Jesus. And so uh, here he is teaching his disciples. This is about what it means to be a disciple. And a disciple is a learner of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Um, But we need to remember that we have to look at it through the lens of grace, which means that a learner of Jesus has been given all the tools necessary to follow. In other words, we can't come to God unless God has first come to us. We can't speak to God um, in a way that actually makes sense unless His Spirit is within us. This is why we're told in, in Romans 8 that we do not know what to pray as we ought. So God isn't looking for human eloquence. In fact, the wisdom of men is foolishness to God. Uh, he, it says that the Spirit is the interpreter. And like small children who bring things to their parents all the time, a parent's responsibility is to interpret what the child actually needs as well as what they're actually saying. So I like to say the Holy Spirit is the one that's like, we pray for things and our prayers are weird and broken and, and the, the Holy Spirit like, what? What he's trying to say, <laughs> what she's trying to say, it's like, Lord, give me a Ferrari. What he meant was give him a Prius because that will humble him. And if you have one, you should be humble. <laughs> I really hate those cars. I do. I don't care what the gas mileage is. I do feel, feel violated every time I get in that car. We had one for a while. And every time I drive up, I just get out and like look around to see if anyone was looking. 
and just shut the door and be so bummed all day. I just felt like I should have a coexist sticker on the back of it. I don't like it at all. Um, all right. I'm very tired today, so I might be a little untethered. Forgive me. Okay, let's move so we can get through this in 40 minutes. All right, let me read the prayer. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's a very intense verse. Um, we'll unpack that in a moment. We considered last week those first three lines. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus is the one uh, who brings forth the full revelation of what is God like. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And Father was not a name that was applied by the Jewish people to God very often. You have a couple times in the Old Testament in Psalms, Isaiah, um, that God is the Father of Israel. But Jesus brings a personal element to that and brings a new understanding, a fuller revelation of who God is. And this is why I think it is very important to have a Christological um, foundation for when, it, uh, for when we talk about God. We have to start with Jesus. And Jesus, I like to say this, there is no God behind the back of Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of who God is. In fact, when he says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father, he also says, I only speak those things which please the Father. Uh, and we, we need to remember the mysterious doctrine of the Trinity, which is one God, three persons. And three persons, it doesn't say three individuals. The church fathers were very clear in their, in, in, in their language, and personhood is very different than an individual in the sense that an individual is your, is your uniqueness defined by your separation from others, personhood is your uniqueness defined by your relationship to others. In other words, God is a holistic community within himself. And I, I shared this last week, but that, that powerful um, reality that this is the family prayer. We are not, we are not triune uh, in, in the sense that we have three persons <laughs> in in one body. That's not our reality. This is why God says over humankind in the garden before sin has even entered the story, it is not good that man be alone. And this is why I like it that when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, pray like this, not my father, but our father. We are meant to be together and we are meant to learn what it means to follow Jesus together. And all of us are at different places in our faith and all of us are different ages and come from different backgrounds and some, some are still seeking and some of you have walked with Jesus for a lifetime and this is why we need one another. There is nothing better for a believer who's been walking with Christ for a long time to be reminded of what it's like when someone meets Jesus for the first time and then you become convicted by the excitement that you see in them that maybe is 
dwindled as, you've, as the familiar has changed that relational dynamic. There's nothing better for a new believer to see the stability and the maturity of a couple that's walked with Christ for a lifetime. There's nothing better for someone that's struggling with kids that are wayward or family members that are hurting than to be in a community where we have shared stories because wherever the human story is, is told, no matter how unique each of our stories are, there is something universal about those realities. And this is why we need one another because this is how we find the strength to maneuver through what I call the impossibility of existence. Jesus gives us that strength. And he calls us to understand that we have a God who is our Father, and our Father is a good Father, and we can turn to Him as His children, and we can do that together. And it's something that we as a church must do. We are called to pray. Prayer is not just um, a privilege, it is also a responsibility. It's a command even. So, our Father is in heaven, and his name is to be hallowed, is to be exalted. He is to be the central, the central thrust of the human heart. He is, the, he is our central affection. All other affections, all other desires fall into their proper place when we seek God and his kingdom first. This is why it's not that the things of this world are bad in and of themselves. All desires ultimately come from God who alone created real desire. All sin is desire twisted and perverted. It's us doing the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong way. Taking good things and using them in a way that they weren't intended to be used. Um, and this is why we need to be a people that continually remember that the center of the Christian life is not what we do for God, but the question of whether or not we know Him. And the address is personal. And his name is to be exalted, which doesn't mean that he's far from us. It just means he's to be at the, at the center of our, of our pursuit in life. And his kingdom to come means that our kingdom has to go. And for his will to be done in our lives, it means that our will must be surrendered to his. And now Jesus moves into the practical, and this is where we're going to spend our time. I love this. First and foremost... Give us today our daily bread. I want to just think about these in terms of, let's put a title on each of these statements. Uh, and, and I like to refer to this as the child fed. The child fed. And it speaks to two realities, both need and provision. Uh, notice that there are two, two distinct statements in this, this very short line. Give us today our daily bread. Now, here's the thing about need. When we think about this, this statement, first of all, think about the today. Because I don't know about you, but I am a person that could be haunted by the things that were not satisfied yesterday. I am a person that can be haunted by seasons of hunger, both spiritual and physical, both psychological as well as, as the actual appetite, the things that I actually am hungry for. Like right now, I'm actually kind of hungry. Uh, the, the reality is, is that, that today means that we are asking God to not only provide what is necessary for today, but to help us release 
what has been lost yesterday and what we're afraid might not come tomorrow. Nothing destroys the Christian life like the inability to live in the moment. And one of the things that Jesus will continually focus on throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that we are not to worry. I, had a, I actually had, I'm, I'm a person that actually has a chemical imbalance that has given me lifelong, legitimate, like overwhelming and crippling anxiety. And I struggle with incredible fears. As a kid, I was so afraid that something was going to happen to my brain. I think it's probably, and it's partially, we can have a chemical imbalance, but you add to that an unsafe upbringing. Um, a, a, a mom who worked two jobs and me being forced to be kind of like the man of the house at seven years old when we were in between stepdads uh, and, and being responsible for my little brother who was like fearless and constantly putting his life in danger and mine. Uh, those created, it fed on what was already a, an imbalance in my personality and it created an obsessive compulsive disorder around a fear of something happening to my siblings. And so family vacations were terrible for me. I would follow my brothers around and not let them out of my sight because I was so convinced someone was gonna kidnap them. We'd go swimming and I was convinced they were gonna drown. A, a terror of, the, of what might happen. And, and God has delivered me from that for the most part, but every once in a while, I just will have this horrible, like, what if my son's in New York? He's so far from me. Uh, what, what if something happened to him? Or what if something happened to Darcy? Uh, and I, I'll like, forget, like, I need to call him right now. And it, the, the fear of what might happen, I, I can tell you, guys, if I could just relieve the fear a little bit and let you know that all of you are going to die. It's going to happen. Um, if this, is that helpful? And probably most of us will die extremely painfully. Is that also helpful? Um, you know, we all like, I'm going to die in, in my sleep. Probably not. You might, you know, have like a, I don't know, like some terrible like flesh-eating disease or I, I don't, I'm going to have a stroke. I know it. Uh, I, there's all these things that can consume us. And, and have, you, have you been in a place I love? Give us today our daily bread. It's like, think about that because nothing is more terrifying. How much have, we, have you thought? Some of you have thought about this. When COVID hit, it was like, oh man, create a lot of fear over what was, isn't it funny? I haven't said that word in a while. So that's a, that's a, new, that's a new reality. It just struck me. Um, I also haven't heard the word unprecedented in a while, which is also nice. Uh, but one thing that is true is that as, we're come, as we've come out of it, what's this, the, the language of today? Fear of recession. Fear of, some of you are, have experienced legitimate financial loss. Some of you lost businesses. I, I, I know of several people that I've met with that lost businesses. And the fear of not having enough the fear of not being able to pay your bills, the fear of things closing down, that we can be just overwhelmed with these things. And this is why, this is not just a line about give me food today. This is a line about, Lord, help me to trust you for what is necessary for existence today. 
Because when, we, when, we're, when we're haunted by the past and when we're, when we're terrified of the future, it creates a scarcity mentality and it's proven actually on a non-spiritual level that businesses and individuals and families and churches that live with the idea that we gotta, we gotta protect what we have, we gotta hunker down and it is almost a guaranteed ruin. <laughs> that success generally in life is driven by a willingness to be a, a bit of a risk taker. And no place do we have to live by in risk more than following a Jesus who never tells us where he's thinking going. Because the thing is, is that he's not interested in us planning with him. He's not interested in us giving him the menu we want for the day. Um, notice, he didn't say, you know, give us a sandwich even. I mean, we just get stinking plain bread. Nobody ever asks for plain bread unless they're starving. Uh, and I mean, some of you are like, I love bread. I don't even eat carbs, okay? Um, <laughs> but the, the fact is, is that this give us today our daily bread, it speaks to the modest. I love the picture of that. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. He says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. One of the things that is important for us to do when we read through the Sermon on the Mount is that there is something that happened when enlightenment came. I've been reading, I'm, a, I'm fascinated uh, with, uh, with a, I don't even think uh, the philologists are a thing anymore, but uh, the science of philology, which is, a hist which, which is kind of a, a philosophy of language, Owen Barfield, who is the first and last inkling, C.S. Lewis's best friend, was a philologist. Uh, and he, he spent a lifetime exploring the meaning of English, of the English language. And he wrote some very profound books, um, Poetic Diction. One of my favorites by him is, and is considered his masterpiece, called Saving the Appearances. But his great argument in his thrust is that enlightenment did something to language that actually did not mean that language, we, we have not become more advanced and complex in our understanding. And he argues that primitive humanity actually was not less advanced. In fact, they had a more robust understanding of the world and the universe around it because they did not separate the sacred from the secular. They did not separate the spiritual from the physical. And our separation of those things has created a diminishment of the human language. So when we read bread, we think food. But we forget that there are multiple layers of meaning. And that is very true in Scripture. The words carry multiple layers of meaning. Jesus is the light of the world. I mean, that means a lot of different things. And we have lost our sense of, of the sacred, the unseen realities behind the very physical um, illustration that is given. And Jesus doesn't mean uh, that it's not talking about physical bread. He does mean that. <laughs> he is telling us to pray for what we actually physically need. But that's not all that he's saying. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And so when we read a verse like this, it isn't just speaking about, give me the food that's necessary for me to live today. It's also speaking about releasing the past and, and not worrying about the future. It's about, it's about a hunger for what, it's about getting what is necessary to live the most robustly that we can live today, which is both spiritual, physical, emotional, 
psychological. It's about the holistic person. That's why shalom is a word that means being whole. That's what Jesus is after for us. And so when I ask myself, Lord, give me today what is necessary, I, I kind of like that, the daily bread. Obviously, this prayer, he didn't mean for us to just practice this in rote repetition, but he's teaching us the simplicity. Notice the lack of detail in what is stated, because what did he say when Ian taught on that passage? Don't be like the pagans who are, think they're heard because of their many words. Your father already knows what you need before you even ask him. And let me just say this too. A good father, it is true, it says you have not because you ask not. And there are things that are available to us that we just simply don't take advantage of because we don't ask. But we also need to remember that there's plenty of things that the father continues to give us even when we don't ask because that's what a good father does. Um, and that's why this should never be something that drives us to guilt. Oh man, God's gonna be so disappointed in my lack of prayer. He loves you. And he's, and he's inviting you into relationship with him. This is, this is a command, but it's an invitation. And it's only a command because it's what's best for us. And so remember that. This provision, give us today our daily bread. I just ask you like, are you willing to ask Jesus to give you what you need? Or do you often come to him with what you want and then you think God doesn't answer prayers because he never gives you what you want? Have you ever considered the possibility that what you think you want isn't even what you need? And that's an important question because I would say God always answers prayers. It's just that many times his answer is no because it's not what is best. It's not what is best. And believe me, there are things that can come into our lives that are very complicated, and we can say, how could this be best? How could my spouse dying of cancer be best? I, first of all, what God permits into our lives does not necessarily make him responsible. And all I can say is this, God does have the ability to nourish our souls by taking the dissonant notes of our past and bringing them into, um, into something that, that, that brings healing to our lives, but that healing will always leave scars. But here's the thing with scars. Scars are meant to remind us that healing is possible. That's what scars are for. It's true that a heart can be so scarred it can become hard, but, the, but scars in general are meant to remind us that healing is possible. And so give us what we need, Lord, is actually a, a quite a terrifying thing. Because sometimes what we need is we need to live, learn to live by faith. And so maybe God is breaking us of a dependence upon something. He's a good father. And a good father who loves his children is going to discipline them in a way, and discipline does not necessarily mean beat. <laughs> it, means, it means that he is going to shape them it, that they might become the very persons that he, and this is where the father analogy breaks down. He's not a father in an earthly way where we, we're begotten. This is, this, is, this is we, he is the father in the sense that he is also the creator. Like he is the creator of, and he's creating a masterpiece out of you. And, and 
the question is, is will you fight him on that? Asking this, this request, Lord, give me today what I need, is a powerful way in which we learn to trust him, that he, he knows what's best for us and he won't, he will never leave us nor forsake us. It's important for us to get that. Remember what it said to the children of Israel, one of the most beautiful pictures of this principle is actually found when God provides manna from heaven for Israel. And the manna was on the ground in the morning. It was like, wouldn't you like to see what it is? It sounds kind of gross. It was like glistening, like little dough balls, like laying around in the rocks <laughs> in the desert in the morning. That was a miraculous provision from heaven. Um, you know, there's no recipe for manna. Uh, and, and, but it was how God provide nourishment for the children of Israel. And they were told to go out and collect each day, but none of them were to collect more than what was needed for that day. And even those that didn't have much ability, if they went out and collected, their physical strength didn't allow them to collect as long as, long as others. They all had enough for the day, but anyone that tried to collect enough to give them, to stockpile for tomorrow, it would rot. It would rot. And I, I love that. I tell moms who are, um, who are just, they just entered into to motherhood and they're like, come and they're like, man, I'm so exhausted. I feel like God's so disappointed. I haven't had any devotional time for months. Uh, and I'm like, it's a season of life. Like your longing is there. You, you're only able to collect a little bit of manna. So, so it's okay. You'll have enough. His grace is sufficient. And then I've seen other people who are like, I'm going to get all this, all my devotional time, you know, stockpiled with Jesus so I don't have to do anything for a long. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. Every day, this is a call. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, we need to understand that it isn't a one-time feeding upon Christ and his word. It's not a, just like our bodies. It's not a one-time eating. It's if the food's available, we've got it. We need to eat every day. To, I, I know because I just went seven days without food and it's not really what the body's meant to do. Um, and so that hunger is meant to move us toward actually nourishment. It is both need and provision. Secondly, he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This, if the child if we have the child fed, here we have the sinner forgiven. And, and it speaks to both confession or repentance and absolution. Uh, and, and I love this. It shows that how, how, um, how radical the way of Jesus is. Because when we think about our current culture and the hyper-victimization and the demands for equity and justice that are all around us, we always want it for ourselves, but we don't want to give it to anyone else. And I think this is deeply problematic in our culture is that, is that we, even as Christians, I mean, I have seen firsthand the hostility that Christians are capable of. In fact, the most hostility I have ever seen in my life has often come from actually the pew. Now, also the most kindness and the greatest, I would say the, the greatest people I have known in life and the worst people I have known in life have been Christians. Um, and, and I have been, I have, I have seen myself play both of those roles as well. And this is the why, why you never defend the gospel from church history 
because the church history is built upon something that Scripture tells us. It's just we forget. Why are we surprised when people sin if they're sinners? The church history is built upon the shoulders of fallen men and women who have been redeemed by grace, and that is why saints can often be bullies, and bullies can be saints, and wolves can be sheep, and sheep can become wolves. I often think that most wolves in the church actually are probably sheep, and they don't even know they're being wolves. Forgive us our debts is radical because it's something that we are meant to recognize every day. It is true that saving faith in Christ, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he is, he is revealing that it has always been the heart of God. God is a forgiving God. And just keep in mind, forgiveness is not an attribute of God. Forgiveness is the outcome of his attribute violated and his response to it. Wrath is not an attribute of God. Wrath is, is his love violated. It's a response to his character violated. Forgiveness is his response or his answer to his wrath. And that is a profound thing. That God is a God who has sovereignly chosen, he has elected to love sinners in their sin. That is a profound thing. Now here's the thing, that forgiveness that was accomplished through the work of the cross, the mystery of the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit um, through, through the work of Jesus, the God-man, profound reality. He says, every time you drink of the cup, you are to be reminded that my blood is spilled for the forgiveness of sins. And forgiveness is always costly. It's always costly. Because there are only two options when you have been violated. You can either make the person pay or you can absorb it. And that's not easy. Even when the person who has hurt you says they're sorry, it may be very difficult to forgive them, but it is not hard for God to forgive you. In fact, he has forgiven you. And what I would argue is that all sin, past, present, and future, for all people has been dealt with on the cross, but not all people will accept what has already been done for them. That's my personal theological lens. There are varying views. Some Christians think that Jesus made possible forgiveness for, um, for all people, Some, um, but it isn't realized until they become born again. Other people believe that Jesus only worked out forgiveness for some people, uh, which I think violates a whole lot of passages of Scripture, but that might be a view that you hold. As long as you hold to this idea that Jesus atoned for sin on the cross, and if you've been born again, you have been forgiven. From my vantage point, you have accepted the forgiveness that, that has already been worked out. So if all sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven, then why the heck do we need to keep asking for forgiveness? It's a good question, really. I mean, if all sins, all sins, that's not obviously what Catholics think. They think all sins, the possibility of forgiveness. This is why you go to the priest and you go to the confessional, and you gotta stay on top of it, too. Uh, but 
is it even, what did Jesus pray when he was crucified? Father, forgive them for the, what? They, they don't even know that they're sinning. <laughs> so this is why we confess, not to achieve a forgiveness that isn't real until we ask for it. It's to continually place us in a position of humility and gratitude. Confession, here is why we confess our sins. Because when we refuse to confess sins, even if they've already been forgiven, what it does is it hides God from our experience. It's fascinating. Sin actually, when it's confessed, becomes the place where we experience God's presence most fully. So, Father, forgive us our debts. It tells us that there is an accumulation of debt. There is something owed that every time we break God's law, which is, it doesn't, listen, you're not even getting out of bed without, like, is, that's why Luther said the only time you're not sinning is when you're sleeping. And I'm not even sure that's true, because I've woken up from some crazy dreams and I feel like I should repent. Um, and I won't share them right now, because none of you are Carl Young, and only he could interpret them, I guess. Um, no, the reality is, is that life, human life, we live in sinful bodies, we have sinful minds, and we live in a sinful world, and sin is a rebellion against God's rule. And the sin that we need to continually, all sin is wrapped up in one definition. It's not the little things you do wrong. Those are sins, plural. Those are the outworking of the sin nature. Sin is you being your own God. At the end of the day, it's just a red-handed rebellion against God's rule. And the first line of the prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done. So when we ask, Lord, forgive us our debts, we are acknowledging our natural bent toward rebellion and repositioning ourselves in a place of surrender before our king. Which, this is so profound because what it leads to then, and this is why I have such a strong bent on being confessional about being honest about my own brokenness because I believe that the deepest need in the church today is for preachers to stop pretending to live up to an ideal that they nor anyone else can actually keep. It's why I just like up on my Twitter feed today, this girl pops up and she's got this, she's got a massive following, a million people following her because she is a recovered evangelical agnostic atheist who wants to uh, disclose every dirty secret about what she experienced in the Pentecostal church as a worship leader and her belief that everything that was done was manipulative and was meant to actually make pastors rich and take advantage of people and manipulate them and speak lies into their lives so that they would walk away more broken and disappointed. Now, that is so fascinating when people take their experience and just that becomes like some sort of monolithic experience for all people. Uh, but I understand why she's doing that because often the church is creating more intense and impossible ladders for us to climb than the world is. The world sometimes feels more earthy, more down to earth than the gospel, and yet the gospel is all about a God who's come down to earth. It's all about a God who's met us in our brokenness. 
who loves us in spite of ourselves. But the moment we forget that we are sinners and that actually your sanctification is not about you sinning less, it's about you learning to love more. And if you don't love more, I promise you, you don't understand your sin. That's the problem. And I'm not talking about some kind of cheap grace. And as, as, uh, as Capone said, cheap, grace is never cheap, but it is always free. And it's not easy to love without contingency, is it? But when we realize how much we've been forgiven, we will be a forgiving people. We will be a forgiven people. The sinner forgiven means that we will be a people that continually confess our own brokenness because that's where we meet with God and that's how the world knows that we're not, we're not trying to pretend anything. We're recognized. We're just, the only difference between us and one who has not yet been born again is that we have recognized our need for Jesus and that he is our only hope. But we see ourselves in the brokenness, in the reality of our own mixture, and we understand that without Jesus, we are lost. And what we're inviting people into is that, hey, we're not perfect, but we have discovered the one who is. And, and, and He's not gonna make you perfect in this lifetime, but actually from the Father's vantage point, you are seen as perfect in the Son. The most important thing is that you know that you're loved. And the only thing that compels people to live differently is to know that they're loved, not guilted. And when we actually are honest about the fact that there's a ton of sin that we're not even aware of, <laughs> and there's a, even more terrifying is there's lots of sins that we are. Um, because the sin that often goes the most unchecked in the church is pride, spiritual pride, which I think is the ugliest on Christians. It's the ugliest sin on Christians. I would rather deal with a carnal Christian any day than, than some, kind of, some kind of arrogant prig who like thinks that they've spiritually arrived because they read their Bible every day and they give and they don't cuss and they don't sleep around and they, they're, they're moral, they, they're like moral cops looking for people to, to, to belittle so that they can feel spiritually arrived. And I, I wanna say, I am with Luther. The legalist is the where his emphasis went, not because the libertine wasn't real, it's just that libertines are more obvious. <laughs> It's like, it's not that hard if someone's a heroin addict and knows Jesus, but like, yeah, I can see that guy's sin. It's way more difficult to recognize it when you've crossed all your T's and dotted all your I's, but you don't have love. It's a real hard thing. That's why we should probably read 1 Corinthians 13 every week together. Confession leads to a willingness to absolve. And one of the ways that we know that we understand our forgiveness is that we are quick to forgive. The disciple protected. He goes, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, it's, it's interesting in the, in the Greek, that word temptation can be testing. And it is true that Moses spoke to the children of Israel. He said, it is for your testing. Do not fear for God has come to test you and that his fear might be before you so that you may not sin. Um, notice that, that whole idea. God has come to test you uh, that, that his fear might be, be before you and that you might not sin. In other words, that you would enter into an understanding that God is present. The holy God is present. And that testing is not him like putting out this thing saying, let's see if he takes this bait. Like, it's not God if you have a porn addiction 
like making the computer show you a porn site to see if you really love him or not. I would not say that's a good dad. Like, my kid comes to me and says, I'm struggling with this. And it, like, dad, I'm, I'm, I'm str- I've, gotten, I've gotten hooked on cocaine. And then as a dad, I'm like, you know what, honey, we gotta make sure. And I just go get a bag of cocaine and leave it on the kitchen counter to see if he really actually has changed. God is not like that. <laughs> he, does not, he does not do that. And you laugh because it's like, that's ridiculous. But often Christians think like, God is testing me. He's, 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 putting these, he's putting this in front of me. No, that's not how it works. The Christian is liberated. Jesus says, whoever the Son of Man sets free shall be free indeed. Our freedom is what comes with, is what creates responsibility. And freedom actually creates the possibility of making a mess. As a good dad, as my children grow in maturity, their freedom increased until ultimately Henry's an adult who lives in New York and my daughter's 17 and she drives. Does it terrify me still? Yes, but she's a better driver than me. But when she was three, I didn't let her play at the park by herself. In other words, as freedom increases, I have to, I have to allow for, if maturity is to happen, I have to allow a certain level of risk in. I have to give her space to grow and, and to make mistakes. And I think that our father, this is the thing, I remember the early days of the Christian life, everything seemed so easy. It was just all so black and white. And then shades of gray started coming into my life and it became complicated. I started realizing like, wait, you mean the scripture doesn't say I can never drink? No, it doesn't. Okay, great Lord, I'm gonna drink. And then I'm like, but I'm having kind of a problem with this, Lord. And he's like, put on your big boy pants then, son, and make a wise decision. <laughs> I've given you my spirit so that you can discern what is right and what is wrong for you. <laughs> yes, for everybody, that's not the same. The legalist says, if it's not good for me, it can't be good for you. Don't do it because I'm not doing it. But the mature Christian, there's many things that scripture does not say you can't do, but it does say that we are to apply wisdom, spiritual wisdom, and that comes with maturity, and that is the goal, that should be our goal. This is why the church often got chastised by Peter and by Paul for, it's like, you should be drinking, you should be eating meat by now, but you're still drinking spiritual milk. You're not growing. And I love this, lead us not into temptation, is actually, Lord, protect us from all the things that come at us that can destroy our testimony. Lord, Protect us, strengthen us. Don't become overcome with evil, we are told in Romans 12, 21, but overcome evil with good. In other words, how do, we, how do we avoid what is bad? How do we hate what is evil and cling to what is good? Well, one of the ways, it says, resist the devil in James, James chapter four. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It is immediately fault. Well, how do you resist the devil? It, it's actually the answer follows. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The devil's not afraid of you. <laughs> He's afraid of God in you. And as long as you're not aware of God in you, <laughs> he's, gonna keep going, he's, he's gonna keep coming after you anyway. But our ability to resist Satan is not our, you know, we're called to take up the armor of God. Once again, it's God's armor. 
And the way that we, this is why we should be praying, Lord, I, I don't want to, I'm not going, I'm not devil hunting. <laughs> I want you to keep them as far from me as possible. Protect me. I'm going to draw near to you. That is your greatest combat in spiritual warfare. And when there is no spiritual warfare in the believer's life, the question is, is are you actually a threat to his kingdom? Because we are told that the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. This is why Jesus said, your father is not my father in heaven. Your father is the father of this world. And he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And that is a painful word that he gave to the religious leaders. Our understanding of spiritual warfare, this is why language is so important. I come back to the Barfield reality. It's like we've got to have a better discernment that we cannot separate the sacred from the, from the secular. We cannot separate the spiritual from the physical. There is an unseen world and it's real. And there is a real enemy and there is a real battle. And life is a battleground, not a playground. And life is impossible without Jesus. And this is why we need his protection. Why we need to recognize, as it says in Psalm 32, that you are my hiding place, O Lord. And I close with this statement. The forgiven must forgive. Jesus finishes up that prayer. And I love that the prayer ends with, I mean, he starts with, he starts with what are the basic needs of the day as it moves into those petitions. Lord, just give me what I need today, which is you, and then the things that I need to live. And Lord, I, I just ask, give me, give me a, a, um, an awareness of my own desperate need for you. Forgive me so that I can be a conduit of your grace to others because witness is the primary responsibility of the church. And as I become a witness, inevitably I'm gonna end up in all kinds of, all kinds of battle. So guide me in the path of following you and making you known and protect me from the enemy who wants to destroy that witness. It's a very powerful thing. I actually think the family prayer is a witness prayer. It's about being his witnesses. And he ends with this. Here's the litmus test, friends. The forgiven must forgive. Not must, the forgiven do forgive. Those that have accepted the forgiveness that is theirs, the, 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 the true test that we have been born again is, that, is our ability to love. And it's not love in a worldly sense, it is agape. And agape is directly connected to grace. And grace is love without contingency, which means that we are a people that no matter how many times someone hurts us, we will forgive them. We will forgive them again and again. My book comes out in 16 days and one of the key aspects of the whole book and and i'm really excited about it i believe in this message it's the heartbeat by the way the book's dedicated to you guys and it's come out of 14 years of ministry at door of hope um and you guys being privy to god on a kind of you know our lives are kind of meta like as i have been leading a church for 14 years on the same time uh, and trying to discover with you what it means to have a heavenly father and to come to him with boldness and to know him and to love him and to re represent him well. There is also the, this broken kid who had never found healing from a father that abandoned him, which made knowing God as a father very difficult. I mean, God putting on my heart in year three of Door of Hope that 
I can't be a spiritual father to a bunch of millennials who are getting saved when I won't even talk to my own earthly father. And pushing into a relationship last week uh, marked the one year mark of my dad's death. It was a really hard day. Um, you know, it's, it's so interesting. You know, I would go five years without talking to my dad, but I at least knew he was still there if I wanted to call him. <laughs> and I, I had to learn how to, I'm, I'm having to learn how to live without him in a new way. Um, which is a really fascinating thing. But to see the journey of my, my father, forgiveness led to my father's salvation. If I had not been willing to forgive my father, and I, just to remind you guys, my dad never, ever apologized for abandoning my brother and I, ever, not once. In fact, he told me, even a few years before he died, he goes, and then I think once he got saved, I just don't, I think he was just so sick, I don't think he remembered, uh, and I wasn't going to bring it up with him, because um, I was just so excited that he got saved, but I remember him a few years before he died, before, right before he became a believer, he said, I am never going to apologize for how I raised you, and I'm like, but you didn't raise me, you literally didn't, I mean, you, I barely saw you as a kid, I don't know what you're talking about, and he was, and his response was, blankety blank, Josh, when I call you, I want to feel better, not worse. And then he hung up on me. And I'm like, okay, Dad. Um, and, you know, but my, what do you do with that? I mean, the world would say, what are you doing? Why would you enter into any kind of relationship with a man that treats you like that? Why would you enter into a relationship with a guy that told you he's mad at you because you didn't want to be with him when you were two years old because you were scared that because he was drunk and threw you in the back of a car while your mother and him beat each other up fighting over you. Why, why, why would you enter into a relationship? Because that is what Jesus did for me. Because that's the gospel. Because I wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Because I mocked the gospel. Because I mocked Christians. Because I was a horrible womanizer and a wannabe rock star, arrogant, narcissistic, married to a woman that I did not deserve who was on the verge of leaving. And Jesus, in spite of all of these things, he met me in my brokenness and loved me and gave himself for me and showed me that there is nothing I can do to stop his love from me. All I can do is reject it or accept it. And to accept his love, he who has been forgiven much loves much. I would say a person that does not forgive someone that has hurt them, I don't care what they have done. And I mean that. The list can be long. All you need to do is read Corey Ten Boom's story of the hiding place. And let me just tell you, forgiveness is not just in your head like, I forgive them, Lord. But in actuality, you don't ever want to see them again. You don't ever want to have to actually be confronted by them. I, I, I said, I confused um, forgiveness um, with actually my incredible ability to just pretend someone doesn't exist when they hurt me. That's not forgiveness. Nor is beating them up. <laughs> Although there are many times where I've wanted to beat people up. That doesn't mean that I don't forgive them. It just means that they actually might deserve to be beat up. And I never do it because it lives in my head and it's just something I'm working through. And this is why we have to constantly ask for forgiveness because who's angry even in their mind with their brother is a murderer, which should once again tell you that we're all on the same playing field, friends. We're all on the same playing field. 
Only two types of people, evil people that say yes to Jesus, evil people that say no. And so are you forgiving others? Because to be a Christian who truly understands what Christ has done for you, you cannot, you cannot say you're a Christian and refuse to forgive. Jesus is not saying here, every time you don't forgive, God retracts his forgiveness. He is basically putting forth another, another oxymoron. That it's actually, he's, he's stating something that doesn't exist. Someone that's born again does forgive because they've been forgiven. That's called new identity. It's called, it's called, we are called as Christians to reflect the nature of Jesus and our identification in him. And when we don't do that, we are choosing to live like the children of Israel who long to go back to Egypt. What we end up doing is just, it may not change your position as saved men and women, but it does create a wasted life and it creates a wilderness wandering and you don't have to wander in the wilderness. The promised land is not the promise of heaven. The promised land is the ability to enjoy the presence of Jesus right now by accepting his forgiveness and being a conduit of that forgiveness. This is the gospel, friends. This is why we pray. Amen?